following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. got your Bibles, open up to the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. Andrew Zeller is one of our newly installed elders, preached last week, and he touched on Isaiah 9-6. We hadn't coordinated, and so I was a little worried when he said he was preaching from Isaiah 9, but I think we're good. I think there's not a great deal of overlap, and what he did last week served as a great foundation for us. And so, as a reminder to see how many of us were paying attention last week, he spoke of the four titles that Isaiah gives to the promised one who would come. Anybody remember what those are? Come on. Okay, all right, I'm hearing it. There's a murmur, right? Wonderful counselor, everlasting God. I went out of order. Mighty God, everlasting Father. Look at the notes, Prince of Peace, right? I promise I was paying attention, Zones. We're gonna unpack a bit about the book of Isaiah and how what he was saying as a prophet of God squared with what the people of Israel and of Judah were experiencing at that time. So for starters, if you got your Bibles open now, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's in, on page 489. We're going to start in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his sh- for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire." For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. And it is a welcome word for those who hear it, unending peace and a kingdom that upholds justice and righteousness for all time. As the prophet Isaiah emphatically assures us that it is the zeal of of the Lord that will accomplish this, the jealousy for his honor, that his name and his gospel might be proclaimed. See, God has shown himself to be both faithful to his people, and he possesses the authority and the ability, the resource necessary as the Lord of hosts, to see that peace and equity are established without end. Now, that's a good place to end, but before we close our Bibles and call it a day, let's remember that these words were originally spoken to Israel Israel and to Judah through the prophet Isaiah, and they are instructive and hopeful for us. 
but we can't simply just skip ahead to their relevance for us. It's important for us to try and roll up our sleeves and understand as best we can how these words would have been received by the original hearers. God's relationship with Israel was different than any other nation. Beginning with the initial patriarch, Abraham, Yahweh established covenants with his people, helping them to understand their relationship with God, one another, and the world around them. These covenants were held firm by the faithfulness of Yahweh towards his people. So let's rewind the tape a bit, and we're going to look at two specific covenants as we get started this morning. First, God's covenant promise and commitment to Abraham, and then also to his servant David. So the first one in Genesis 12 with Abraham, we get an inside look at a conversation between God and Abraham, and here's how it plays out in Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and dishonor uh, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in all the families of the earth, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God asks no small thing of the man who was then, Abram, right? He asks him to leave his home and his family and all his familiar and go to a place that he is leading him towards, that he will show him. God promises to make from his humble family a great nation, promising blessing and protection as he establishes his family and his name. And he closes with an important point, that through him and his line, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, if we just read that in isolation, you might say, yeah, no big deal, but we learn throughout the narrative that Abram is old and without children. And God gives yet another promise in Genesis 15. He promises him an offspring that will outnumber or be equal to the stars in the sky. And Abraham believes God, and he honors his faith. And through Abram, God begins to fashion a people through whom he will bless the whole world. If we skip ahead a number of generations to 2 Samuel, we get a little more insight as to a covenant between God and King David. 2 Samuel 7:16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Earlier in the chapter, God instructs David to build him a house so that he may dwell with his people. And he shares with David that he will establish kingship through his offspring that will reign for all time. Why is this important? Why did I have you flip to Isaiah if we're going to be trodden through kingly lineage? Because the prophet Isaiah was speaking to God's people at a poignant time in their history. They were being ruled by kings, some in the lineage of David, but things were about to get worse before they get better. And if you read through the kingly line of God's people, this unsavory bipartisanship develops. You can look through First and Second Kings, and they, the, the men who served as kings are usually described in one of two ways. Either they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David had done, or they did what was evil 
in the sight of the Lord. Then there's kind of a third category with an asterisk. They did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not a David has done, right? It's pretty hard, uh, you know, tough comparison when you're looking at somebody who was a man after God's own heart, right? But if you wanted to venture a guess, which description do you think befit more of the men who served as kings in Israel and Judah? Overwhelmingly, God's people were ruled by kings who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And even those who started off well lost steam and departed from the faithfulness of God. So in our passage today, Isaiah is speaking to a people who have drifted from the worship of God and need to be called back to faithfulness to him. And if you've read large portions of the Old Testament, there's a pattern that you see that develops. And it goes something like this. The people of God depart from faithfulness to Yahweh and a worship of him. And so God brings judgment or discipline towards them, usually by the hand of another oppressing nation who doesn't know Yahweh. As a result, God's people cry out for help and for mercy and for restoration. And then in that, God responds to the prayers of his people and restores relationship. And then the cycle starts again. Wash, rinse, repeat. So as we parachute into Isaiah chapter 9, it's important for us to understand the landscape. Looking at the verses just before and just after Isaiah 9, 2 through 7, we see that God's discipline is coming to Israel and to Judah by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. God's people have largely forgotten him and his faithfulness towards them. And discipline is coming toward hard hearts, as Isaiah describes at the end of chapter 8, people who walk in thick darkness. Now this discipline, again, is always designed to draw God's people back to, to Yahweh and to his covenant faithfulness. But towards the end of chapter 8, we read this, this encouragement to the remnant, to the small group in Judah who were yet seeking Lord in dark times. And the instruction is simple. Fear the Lord and wait on him. Isaiah is charged by God as his mouthpiece to bring words of judgment. And yet he speaks to a distant future when all injustice will end and peace will reign and God's people will rejoice with the joy of the harvest. As we look at our text in Isaiah 9, Look at the promised hope that will come through the Prince of Peace. Verse 2. Light will replace darkness. Verse 3. Joy will replace death. Verse 4. Deliverance will replace oppression. But when would this beautiful new reality break through the darkness? And what then is the purpose of prophecy if it's in some distant future? Was it to create a remnant who would check their newspapers and become future forecasters? Would it create a whole new fervor for the Left Behind series? That was a little naughty. Probably not. <laughs> I appreciated the thoughts of an Old Testament scholar, and since he's wise, I was going to put his uh, words up on the screen because they're a little thick, but I think they're important. Let's look at those. The prophets did foretell events that were to take place in the future. 
However, they foretold these events not so much for the sake of the future as for the present, and not for satisfying the curiosity of their contemporaries, but for their repentance or encouragement. The message of the future, whether of judgment or of salvation, was proclaimed to effect change in the original hearers. The prophet was primarily concerned with the present. His task was to communicate God's message for now and to summon the people to respond today. I thought that was helpful because when it comes to prophecy, problem is that we can often turn into curious prognosticators rather than repentant worshipers. God's word for us tomorrow should have a lasting impact on our behavior and our worship today. So may we not become speculators about the coming days and current events and signs primarily, but instead to keep watch over our own hearts and to yearn for the peace that Christ alone can bring. Like the remnant of Judah, would we fear the Lord and would we wait for him? As we focus this morning on the one whose law is love and whose gospel is peace, perhaps it would be helpful for us to qualify the kind of peace we're talking about today. I'm going to read a section from Colossians 1. I was going to read a smaller section, but I can't skip the first part because it's just too good. So we're going to start in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is Jesus. There is no other. Verse 19 shifts a little bit. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Another shift. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in creation, in all creation under heaven, and for which I, Paul, became a minister. Jesus is superlative, number one, or if he was being proclaimed on sports radio, the goat, right? The greatest of all time, right? How many of us would like to hear Stephen A. riff on that a little bit? Yeah, no? Anyway, he has, through his cross, served to reconcile God and man. We who were once far off can be brought near through his atonement and through his grace as we abide in him. My suspicion is that as we read that text from the book of Colossians, that we fall into one of two camps. Hear me out. Either we have a hard time 
internalizing the fact that we were distanced from God. We have a hard time hearing words like his enemy and owning the fact that there is pervasive evil in our thoughts or our deeds. Or we struggle to believe that through Jesus we can be brought into God's presence and we have a hard time stomaching words like holy and blameless and faultless. Can those really describe us? The problem is that if we only sit in either one of those camps, both are true. Both are true and affirmed by Scripture. There is no hope for peace with God apart from Christ because of your and my obstinance and our sin. And yet, in Christ, we can stand in God's presence holy and blameless. That should be crazy. We're a pretty small community. We know one another. We serve together. We're in community groups. We know our propensities. The peace that is offered through God should be baffling to us. We sing a hymn regularly in our community, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, and one of the stanzas puts this language uh, to melody, and it says this, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, old King Jamesian word, interposed his precious blood. That word interposed speaks to the fact that there has been a glorious exchange in the one who has been forgiven through the blood of Christ. His blood for us pumps through the veins of the redeemed, bringing life where there was once death, relationship where there was once only enmity, righteousness where there was only rebellion. If you long to be made right with God, know that Ephesians describes Jesus himself as our peace. And if you have not yet responded to the peace God is offering to mankind in Christ, the invitation is open today. We would love to talk and to pray with you. We're gonna have a prayer time during communion. Any of those guys who were up here as elders would love to pray with you, to talk with you, and to help you understand the reason as to why Jesus is our hope. As we focus our attention on the Prince of Peace that's spoken of in Isaiah 9, you're probably feeling a tension. Because as you read through kind of the descriptive language that the prophet gives us, it's hard to square up those words with our experience in the world. Do we experience more light or darkness today? Do God's people experience joy like at harvest time or when dividing the spoil of victory? Even if you can say yes to those questions, how about these? Has oppression and warring come to an end? Has the peace, righteousness, and justice of the Prince of Peace found its way to every corner of our world? These are uncomfortable questions for us to wrestle through, but they're important. If we believe Jesus is the promised Messiah and the Prince of Peace, why are there so many corners of our world and our lives that don't reflect that peace? Two dudes rocking high in theology might help us with that idea. A guy named Carl F. Henry and George Eldon Ladd. Both of them helped to formulate an idea known as the inaugurated eschatology. 
if those words have far too many syllables for you, know that what they in essence mean as they help us to understand and form language around the idea that God's kingdom and his reign began at the first advent of Jesus, but will not be fully realized until his second advent or coming. His peace is now a reality for those of us who are in him, but it won't be fully realized until he comes again. This idea of the now and not yet kingdom of God is helpful as we long for there to be a day when we can fully realize peace in ourselves and our family and in our relationships with our coworkers, in our neighborhoods, and in our world. This idea also helps us to genuinely empathize with the hearers of Isaiah's prophecy of the Prince of Peace who would rule on the throne of David. We long for things to be made right and injustice and war and oppression to cease. Like the humble hobbit Samwise, we long for a day when everything sad in the world will become untrue. We long for the day, spoken by John the Revelator, when God will wipe away every tear, when death shall be no more, and when mourning and crying and pain will cease. But in order to better understand Christ's peace and what the kingdom brings, let's look at how the Gospel of John records a few of the Savior's conversation with his disciples. Let's first flip to John chapter 14. It'll be up there on the screen. And for a bit of setup, Jesus has just finished proclaiming to those that would hear that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one has access to the Father but through him. He also spoke that he will leave, but that the Holy Spirit will come to be with those that are in him forever, and that he will help to instruct disciples in all things. That's a cool promise. But in preparing them for his departure, he says this, John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Why does he share that? He knows the road that he will walk, right? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and the road that led him there. His disciples were still largely ignorant, right? Whenever he spoke of dying or rising again, they had questions, and they thought that he was talking in riddles, but he knew these were prophecies that would come true. And so as someone who had walked with them and ministered alongside them, he offers them peace, his peace. Later in John 16, he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He knows that they will struggle with the reality of Jesus' trial and his scourging and his crucifixion but he invites them to accept his peace. He even knows that they will struggle to comprehend fully his resurrection, but he lovingly emboldens them to take heart and to know that he has overcome the world. Where do you need to hear the words of the Prince of Peace? Where do you need to take heart knowing that he has overcome the world? Do you worry about your well-being or that of those that you love? 
you have anxiety about whether or not you can make ends meet? At the end of the day, are you consumed with this thought of not having enough or the things that you need or not being enough to those in need around you? Jesus knew that would be a struggle for his disciples and for us. And so he lovingly lays out these strong words to them in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 22. Just listen to his words. May they be to us as they were to them. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body or what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink. Do not be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old and with treasure in heaven that does not fail, where thief does not approach and where moth cannot destroy. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. (laughs) As you read that, I already hear the resistance in my mind and probably in yours, right? All the buts are coming. But Jesus knows the anxiety of our hearts. He also knows the difficulty of living in faithfulness to the will of the Father in a broken world. And he invites us to prioritize the kingdom first. I love that. It is the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom and the peace that it brings. But he knows that he is asking something to his disciples and by extension to us that will sound alien to our fickle hearts. He says the ways of the world and the systems is to seek security and stuff. And he wants something better for us, something lasting that does not fade, that is incorruptible. The question becomes, how can something so far off help us today? That is what the remnant of Judah were most likely thinking. Even if they trusted Yahweh for a distant future, they knew that the literal tomorrow looked like oppression by a nation that did not know and did not worship Yahweh. How does a future hope help us with the difficulty of today? Jesus' hope for us is that we will live differently in light of what we trust the Prince of Peace to bring about in his time. So like those who first heard the prophecy 
of wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, would we repent? Would we receive God's peace in Jesus? And would we wait on him? About a year ago, my friend George Wilkinson encouraged me to read a book on Christian virtues. He likes to read books on ethics and philosophy. And he earmarked one specific chapter in this book on the idea of contentment, written by Steve Porter. He turned me on to the book because it had some challenging ideas about contentment and how it's found in Christ. And since he's a a good friend and a sharp cookie, I ordered the book, and then because life is busy, the tyranny of the urgent took over, and it sat on my desk for a long time, right? Piles on top of it. And at one point as I was cleaning my desk off, I found the book, I saw the earmark chapter, and I opened it, and I was so glad that I did. The book is a bit academic, to be sure, but it helped me to parse out something that seemed irreconcilable before. The question is, can I have contentment and peace even if what I long for is not satisfied, right? Mick Jagger's not the only one asking that question. So if you're like me and like Mick, what the author Steve shares is helpful for us as we yearn for contentment and for peace in the midst of difficulty. He divides two things that at first glance seem interdependent, contentment and satisfaction. He went to this question because he was spurred on by the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians, who seems to have reached some rarefied air when it comes to peace and contentment. Listen to Paul's words, Philippians 4. I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. This is important because you and I will undoubtedly roll through life with all sorts of things that are unsatisfactory to us. We have hopes that are unrealized. We have goals that sit unmet. And we have prayer requests that from our vantage point are unresolved. If our contentment is dependent on the satisfaction of our hopes and our goals and our prayers, then that is a recipe to be deeply unhappy people who are defined by anxiety rather than peace. I bring this up because as we talk about peace this morning, I know, or I hope I know, that there are parts of your life and your family and your relationships and our world that you're not satisfied with because they don't reflect the peace of God. As we sit in relationships that have ongoing discord, do we seek and yearn for the peace of Christ? As we drive through the neighborhoods of Portland and we see the hurt and the needs that are apparent from makeshift shelters, do we ask the Spirit to give us wisdom as to how to bring His peace? As we see through our media the unrest and the turmoil that exists in so many corners of the world, Do we, through Jesus, pray to the Father that his kingdom would come and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven? The hard part is that in our media-driven and information-driven age, 
We understand that our exposure to the places of needs in our neighborhoods, our relationships, and our world will always outweigh our capacity to help. And yet contentment does not equal inaction. Instead, it should be contentment equals engagement as the Spirit leads without anxiety. So, long lead-in. Here's a quote from Steve Porter in the idea of contentment. And I thought I'd share it in terms of the conclusion because it's really good. The supernatural formation of contentment involves practices which help one realize, appreciate, and internalize the ultimate satisfaction of being rooted and grounded in God's love so that any other unsatisfying element of life pale in comparison as we live more and more in the fullness of God's gracious and loving presence, contentment becomes the natural response to even the most undesirable of circumstances. If we are people who have received peace with God through Christ, then a future promised eternal peace can give us contentment in a world that has peace and short supply. In this way, we get to live as followers of the Prince of Peace with a non-anxious presence. If we can live as people who are contented in Him and to continue to press into our relationships and our neighborhoods and our spheres of influence with His peace, it will provoke conversation. People will be caught off guard if not disrupted by our contented state. And they will ask why we are hopeful and how we could possibly have peace in the midst of suffering and brokenness and addiction and miscarriage and job loss and cancer and death. Those are the very places that the Holy Spirit can use to make those around us curious and to ask about Jesus' work in our lives. They will want to know about your peaceful heart And you can tell them about Jesus who is the hope of glory through suffering. Best friends are interesting. One of the reasons that those are both beautiful and challenging in the same moment is because when you have a level of proximity and friendship with someone, it allows you to see behind the curtain. And it allows you to get past the the Facebook feed to see what's really going on. And one of my best friends growing up, Josh, in Southern California, married his high school sweetheart. And I had the privilege to stand up with him at his wedding. And then a couple years later, he returned the favor for me and stood up as one of my groomsmen. And it was cool to get to walk with him as we learned what it was to be newlyweds with our wives. But as Josh and his wife, Megan, sought to have children, they had challenges. And the doctor told them that they may never have kids of their own. And so after months and years of praying and planning and crying and praying some more, they conceived, and nine months later, beautiful little Ella was born. And we all celebrated with them together in their joy. Months into her young life, however, Ella began to suffer from regular seizures. Some were mild, but many were more severe, and they were always frequent. After a number of tests, the doctors diagnosed Ella with a rare seizure disorder 
and began a treatment plan. With this news, they planned for a difficult road ahead, but they had reason to be optimistic in walking with their daughter through this new reality. However, despite all our friends hoped and prayed for, Ella died on Black Friday in 2009 at the age of two and a half. Everyone was devastated by the news, especially the parents. There were plenty of questions and grief and even a fair dose of anger to go around. Everyone close to them sought to walk with them in their loss. In moments like these, as you and I have the opportunity to walk with those we love through deep pain, we often wonder how they'll respond. And sometimes we even put ourselves in their shoes thinking how we would respond if we sat in the pain that they were experiencing. How do you go on? Why did God let this happen? What happens next? As we prepared with our friends for the memorial service, Sarah sat with Ella's mom, and she shared openly about her grief and their experience as a family. Megan shared that during Ella's short life, they prayed with her each night before bed that God would heal her of her disease and its symptoms, that she wouldn't suffer anymore. And after Ella had passed, Megan realized that God had answered their prayers. Yet it wasn't in a way that they had expected. Megan and Josh knew that Ella wasn't suffering any longer, that she was present with her Savior, and that she was healed from her pain. They were able to rejoice in that and to look forward to a day in the future when they would be with her made whole. Here's the thing. Outside of Christ, that math doesn't work. Josh and Megan were given a peace that passes understanding. And it has given a genuine hope for their future one day with Jesus. For those that know Josh and Megan and their family, their experience and their response because of their faith in the Savior spoke as loud as any sermon. People of CB, we often focus on having the perfect things to say as we communicate the gospel, but do our lives exhibit the peace that we preach in Jesus? Sarah and I were recently eating dinner with a young couple from our church, and they were sharing about how they had a desire to make space in their lives, to reprioritize so that they could practice genuine Christian hospitality in their home. And in their conversation, the husband talked in a way that was remarkably transparent and astute. And he shared that while opening their home was a good first step, it wasn't all there was. Because he said that opening their homes wouldn't mean much if their lives didn't look different because of the peace and presence of Jesus. He prayed that his family would be life-giving people towards others because the gospel had taken root in their lives. Do our lives reflect the peace that we have been given in Christ? May the Lord help us to be that kind of community at Central Bible Church. God desires for us to have his peace, to know that we can go from being enemies to being family, to trust that despite what our eyes see and what our hearts feel, that he will make all things new. 
to set our eyes to a beautiful future that the Prince of Peace alone can bring about. And to, as his disciples, trust in and live out of the peace that he offers us today. Knowing that from out of darkness, a light has dawned. His law is love and his gospel is peace. May we trust him to increase our joy in the midst of a hurting world, knowing that he will bring about his equity, peace, and just reign that will know no end. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, we are so thankful for the peace that has been offered us in Jesus. Not just partial peace, but restoration from a relationship that was severed because of our sin, but can be made right through Jesus. And yet we yearn as men and women, boys and girls who seek to follow you, knowing that there are still plenty of unpeaceful places both outside of ourselves and within us. Help us to be men and women that embrace your peace and who have a supernatural contentedness that you give us, understanding that those unsatiated hungers that we have, the longing for justice and peace and a place and a time where there will be no more tears, that that will be realized. May that give us hope for today. Remember that change us now. And in that way, would you help us to be beacons of your hope and your peace shining brightly for you. We want to be that kind of church and those kind of people. We need you and we love you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. We desire to be formed by the word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.